I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday night. Well, I guess Sunday morning right here. And UFC 256 is in the books. My name is Luke Thomas. I am one half of the hosting duo from Morning Combat. Brian Campbell, my colleague, gave you guys an immediate reaction to the Joshua fight that happened earlier today. And I'm going to take you through an immediate reaction to UFC 256's main and co-main event. The results are in, and there's a lot to get to. First things first, please like the video, of course. I always appreciate that when you do. And hit that subscribe button. We definitely need that from you folks. We appreciate you watching, and uh, but we need that participation from you if you can. Now, what do we have to say about Devison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno? What do we have to say about Tony Ferguson and Charles Oliveira? Let's get into it. Now, for a fuller card breakdown, you can wait for the full episode of Morning Combat. That'll happen at 11 a.m. on Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern. That will have Brian's opinion, mine, plus a whole lot more than just what I'm going to cover here. But it is worth getting to the main and co-main event. All right, so Devison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno had a draw, a majority draw. The, the judges had it 47-46 for Figueredo, and then two 47-47s there. Okay, what can we say about this fight? There's a lot to say about this fight, in fact. Uh, in terms of my scoring, I wasn't doing it in a the way you're supposed to, round by round, and then scoring 10-9. It seemed to me that Figueredo had won more rounds than Moreno, uh, but there's this key, was it the second or third round, um, there was a point taken from Figueredo for an inadvertent but still quite severe kick to the groin on Brandon Moreno, and I didn't mind that. There were some smaller fouls that Figueredo had landed earlier in the fight, and this was the one that had really sort of stopped the action for the most part. And it, and you could see Moreno in extraordinary discomfort, and the replay showed that, again, not not intentional but just very severe. So referee Jason Herzog took a point, and that, of course, is going to affect – the scores as well. I don't, I, I, I personally, here's my, this, again, and your mileage will vary on this one. To me, the acceptable outcomes are a draw. I don't think there's any problem with that or a win for Figueredo. I, I think the argument that Moreno, even with the point deduction for Figueredo, did enough to win, that's a little bit of a weaker argument. But I have to say, you know, in fairness to everybody else, there was a ton of diversity of scores all over social media. What's kind of funny is in a draw, you don't normally get fight fans who are pleased. I mean, they might sort of say reluctantly, yeah, you know, this was the right outcome uh, in terms of, you know, if you're properly scoring it. But that doesn't mean they really enjoyed the fight or um, sometimes you can't even get that, that the judges might have messed it up. In other words, when you get a draw, that's not really the kind of finality that fight fans are looking for. Here you had a draw, and I think most fight fans who were watching tonight are quite pleased with it. That That is a fair reflection Again, also adding in that point deduction um, of what had happened. So kind of an interesting moment. Now, we'll circle back to this, but I kind of want to introduce it this way. Um, Some are calling it the best fight in flyweight history. It it, it might be. If it's not, it's number two or three on the list, you know, at bare minimum top five. But it's, it's higher than that. This is one of the best fights in that division's history. Now, the fifth round to me fell off a cliff, but the first four rounds, absolute, total, Unequivocal magic. I mean, just just the best thing, okay? 
What you had, it seemed to me, was you had a Figueredo who was, I think, surprised by a couple of things. One, just the grit and tenacity of Moreno. Um, I think Moreno's counterpunching on occasion was great. There were times where he was able to get Moreno backed up behind the two black lines along the fence line, and then he would just unload with combos. He was good with sort of firing the head kick, especially kind of early. Um, he landed a couple times late, but I mean, he was very diligent about it uh, early. And, you know, he just fought with a way where you could just tell he believed in himself. And I know that sounds really weird. You're like, doesn't everyone at this level basically fight like they believe in themselves? And I would argue no, especially when, you know, it's pretty clear that there are some obvious disadvantages. And the obvious disadvantage would be, even though Moreno was doing some things quite wisely and I thought was quite good with the takedowns, the firepower was pretty different. It looked to me like Figueredo hit harder, certainly punched harder. And it also looked to me like he was physically stronger of the two. So while he was getting taken down, and that was a bit of an issue for him, um, you know, he just looked like the guy who was the more physical athlete in that space. And you could see that, you know, not that he was Moreno was getting wide-eyed, but he was wearing it a little bit. His right eye got messed up. There were some other issues with his arms that, you know, the commentator Joe Rogan went into that I don't know what necessarily was related to the pure firepower of Figueredo. But, you know, Figueredo was busting him up pretty good. And yet the guy just refused to go away. I mean, Moreno had, but A would return fire. And so there's a question about was it enough or greater than Figueredo? But at bare minimum, you know, trying to answer, you know, if you land on me, I'm going to try and give you one back. There was all of that. And, you know, he never got tired. Amazingly, Figueredo, even though he had a, uh, cuts a lot of weight, he had a weight cut three weeks ago, he did not, um, Get tired. Both guys seem to have a lot of energy in the fifth. Even though the fifth round kind of stalled out, it didn't stall out because of... It seemed like a strategic stall out, not a physical stall out. But, you know, Moreno to me like the guy... Excuse me, I should say. Figueredo looked to me like the guy who really had the physical might and uh, was the bigger of the two. But Moreno had unbelievable heart. I think was uh, surprising with the takedowns, as I indicated. Good with the counterpunching on occasion. And absolutely committed to the idea that this was a winnable contest for him and fought that way all the way through. I cannot tell you how many times I've watched a guy fight who was very talented that maybe if they had that kind of belief, they could have beaten the person they were up against. But they felt that person's pressure or power punching or something early. And, you know, even they didn't, didn't get finished, you didn't get the best out of him. What was interesting about this contest was you didn't get the most dominant Brandon Moreno and you didn't get the most dominant Devison Figueredo, but you got excellent versions of themselves. You got a real nice showcase of what they're both good at. I think Figueredo has surprisingly good range command. Uh, obviously, as we've said, you know, quite the power puncher. On the ground, he is not to be trifled with. Moreno would get the takedowns, but it's not like he was able to just dominate and control him down there. So he's a really good jujitsu, but uh, good scrambling as well. You know, and again, I was surprised by the by the by his ability to go as long as he did without any kind of cardio issues. And you got to see that from Moreno too. Absolute dog, um, clever when he needs to be, surprising at, in, in a lot of different ways, and that made for an absolutely compelling contest. I want to pull up the numbers if I can. I don't know if these are exactly final, final, uh, but it's worth sort of pointing out some of the the data from this fight from Fight Metric. I'm gonna look it up here uh, um, as I speak to you guys right now. Golly, listen to these numbers. Figueroa landed 137 of 238 attempted, and Moreno landed 132 of 248 attempted. So Moreno landed just a little bit less and tried just a little bit more. 
uh, a 57% significant strike percentage for Figueredo, just 53 uh, for Marino. When I say just, I mean just four points less. Unbelievable. Total strikes, uh, yeah, they were all kind of at range, basically. Takedowns, two of four for Figueredo, four of eight for Brandon Marino. That was very surprised. And in terms of location, this was the one that was kind of interesting. No leg kicks for Brandon Moreno, not any that landed. He was going to the body and then mostly to the head. Figueredo, a lot different. Two-thirds of his punches, or his strikes, I should say, were targeted to the head. 24% to the body, less so to the leg um, at 7%. And this fight, over 90% of it taking place at distance. Yeah, an unbelievable output. And the biggest one of the all the rounds was round four. 38 of 53 for Figueredo. 40 of 65 for Brandon Moreno. Just an absolute... You know, uh, two guys who wring out the sponge until it is absolutely dry. Um, So to me, it's easily the best fight since Poirier versus Hooker at the Apex. Now listen to what I'm saying. I know I I tweeted it and folks were like, no, it's better than that. Well, listen to what I'm saying. You, You might be able to make that claim. I'm just pointing out, if you take that as one bookend, what's the next best fight that has taken place there since then? To me, this is the answer. Is it the best flyweight fight in history? You'd have Mighty Mouse versus John Dodson 2 up there. Dustin Ortiz versus Benavidez is another one you'd have up there. And there's some other ones as well. And I'm pointing out, like, this is the company he's they're, they're keeping. They're keeping company with Mighty Mouse. They're keeping company with Benavidez. The two guys previously who were kind of the sort of champion and an unofficial, you know, executive officer uh, of that of that weight class, um, you know, a historic moment really for that for that division. And I said this on Twitter, and I'll and I'll say it again here. You know, ten years ago, Kane notwithstanding, um, it was impossible to imagine that a Mexican MMA fighter uh, could give a Brazilian MMA fighter everything that he could handle, and then maybe even beat him. Uh, and of course, Kane is American and you know, sort of Mexican by heritage, and there's a lot of complications about how one defines identity. But I'm talking about you know, homegrown from Mexico, you know, um, you know, group with one of the teams there, trains with one of the teams, and is putting it all together and showing what he is showing. It is, it is the the, the maturation of a market is slow. It takes time. It's not easy. It's not automatic, um, but it can happen. And you're beginning to see really, and it's not just him, of course. It's it's the wide ranging amount of Mexican fighters who are showing themselves to be quite capable. But you know what he did tonight was unthinkable a decade ago, right? If you take out Cain Velasquez, totally unthinkable. And they, look how far it's come in ten years. I mean, it's pretty impressive. It's very very impressive. So um, the more countries that get good at MMA, the better MMA will get, and the safer it will be as a you know a a sport that can be supported by a lot of different audiences. So. Very, very congratulations to all the Mexican uh, MMA fans out there, and really MMA fans in general. Everyone kind of wins when it's one of those scenarios. So what would be next? I don't know because this was an absolute god-awful war of attrition. They might run it back. It's not exactly clear. You've kind of got some other names out there like Askarov, although he's got some business to attend to. Um, we're going to see. Maybe Cody Garbrandt goes down there. There's a lot of ways that things could go, but at a bare minimum, this was a moment for Br- folks to realize Brandon Moreno is still young and has already come a long way and probably still has a lot, very long way to go. If he's not the present of that division, he might just be the future. For Figueredo, I think it's probably a wake-up call that as good as he is, he is not going to dominate this where you know he can just walk in and take control of a division and... Uh, you know, like he, like he, the way he got through Alex Perez, that was impressive. They're not all going to be like that. You know, you're going to have some nights like tonight where, you know, it was dicey. It was super dicey. So 
Hell of a fight. Would love to know if you guys think it's the best fight in flyweight history. Not a very hard argument to make. I just wonder where the consensus is. So if you have a feeling on that, please put a comment in the uh, in the comments below. I'd love to see what the argument is um, for from you and to see how many of you feel that way. Again, not not a very difficult argument to make. So, you know, one of those nights where you just you wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Like when you're watching a fight like that, you're like, oh, my God. You know, I am in on a secret that nobody else knows. You know, and of course that's not true, but you kind of feel that way. That's exactly how I felt tonight. And even in a pandemic, wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else than exactly where I was watching that fight. So I, I appreciate what those fighters were able to do, and I appreciate that I had the um, you know the opportunity to enjoy that moment in the way that I did. Okay, so um, we'll have a lot more to say about that, but that's a basic overview of that of that main event. I'd actually like to talk more about the co-main event. So your co-main event. Let me make sure I get the uh, the numbers here correct. Charles Oliveira defeats Tony Ferguson 30-26, 30-26, 30-26. Where might that 30-26 come from? Uh, the first round. Uh, Charles Oliveira basically, it looked to me like he, if he didn't break Tony's arm, he got pretty close to it, and he absolutely dominated him. Let's take a step back. I have a lot to say about this, but I want to start with Charles Oliveira. 31 years old, I believe. Let me verify that, too. I want to make sure I don't say anything. Yeah, 31 years old. This guy came into the UFC how long ago? He made his UFC debut in 2010. So he was, what, 21 years old when he came into the UFC? How many times have we said this? We talked about it with Marvin Vittori. Sometimes when you get to the UFC, people will get a certain impression of you. And it's not to say that the impression is wrong. Maybe that's just where you are at the moment that folks begin to make some assessments. But you have to be very careful not to get a super you know, inflexible identity as you, for, as an observer, right? You can't look at these fighters and say, that's who they are. Well, that might be who they are then, but that's not who they're always going to be. And that's especially true if they're young. Here in the case of Oliveira, he was obviously always quite good on the ground, but at 21 years old, he was not in the right weight class. Uh, or maybe he was at the time, but, you know, he as he developed, it became more and more of a liability. It just wasn't the right space. His game, in terms of the rest of the pieces, had not come along. And just understanding how to fight, even if you have all the pieces, right? The, the patience of his offense tonight was absolutely incredible. Let me just say something. Ten years later, Charles Oliveira is a completely different guy than the guy who beat Darren Elkins by armbar at August 1st of 2010, the night that John Jones fought Vladimir Matyushenko uh, in San Diego, California on versus totally different guy. I mean, that sounds like you're talking about a bygone era of MMA and you, and you are, you know, that's what he made his debut. And I'm not saying that everyone watching made their impression of him from that moment, but you know, he had losses to Cerrone and Miller and Swanson and Edgar and, you know, and into Holloway and blah, blah, blah. And you kind of thought, okay, he can beat all the ones who aren't the super elite, but he can't beat the other ones. And then lo and behold, he just got better and better and better. It's a call to everyone Fellas, ladies, MMA fans, if somebody is very young, and when I say young, I'm 25-ish or so, in this case, 21, and they're good, but they're not so good, okay, don't make them out to be better than they are. And just because they're not fully developed doesn't mean they're going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. They they may top out at just being okay, but you want to be very careful before you declare what their true identity is. Have it be flexible a little bit. Because Oliveira has turned out to be one of the very best lightweights in the world. I mean, now that Nurmagomedov is gone, who has a better ground game at 155 than him? 
I mean, maybe you could say Nate Diaz. I don't think that's a crazy argument to make, but he's not really fighting there right now anyway. Um, who, who is it? Is it Connor? No. Poirier is very good, but I wouldn't put his ground game on par with it. Um, Felder? Felder beat him in the ground, but in terms of just sort of pure jiu-jitsu and the threats he has down there, I wouldn't say that. Chandler? No. I mean, who, who, who are you going to point to? I mean, that is the king of the ground right now at 155 pounds. And, you know, I would have loved to have seen maybe how he this version of him would look against Habib. You cannot overstate just how good he has gotten. Super, super, super impressive. Kept his nose down and just got better and better and better. The guy hasn't lost since he lost to Paul Felder in December. And since then, he has submitted Clay Guida. He submitted Christos Giagos. He submitted Jim Miller. He submitted David Tamer. He knocked out, or TKO'd anyway, Nick Lentz. He did knock out Jared Gordon. He submitted Kevin Lee. And then today, absolutely dominated, dominated Tony Ferguson. I mean, that is the signature win he was looking for. Those other names are good. Some of them even great. That is elite. He has now an elite win on his resume, and it's not close. Wasn't like he took a split decision. Wasn't like he got dropped and had to recover. He controlled that fight from beginning to end, and that's the end of it. Okay, That is an absolutely unbelievable transformation. For that guy. And and he should be very proud of himself. And his team should be very proud of him as well. So. Um, it'll be interesting to see what's next for him. He didn't take a lot of abuse. Um, may, he, he wants to be ringside. Or cage side for the winner of Poirier and McGregor. We'll have to see. You know, we'll have to see what happens between Gaethje and Chandler. If that's the fight they make. There's, a lot, there's so many great options. But folks. Charles Oliveira has arrived, and this is a moment where even you know years ago I was a skeptic. I was like, okay, he can beat the Giagoses and the David Tamers and the Nicolanses, but he's not going to beat anyone else. And then he just did. And then before this, like you know, I have a high respect for Kevin Lee, and he beat him too. Folks, whatever you thought of Charles Oliveira, if you didn't think he was all that great, you better update. You better update the resume. He has completely arrived. Now that brings us to Tony Ferguson. What do we say? Well, one, the first thing I want to say is it obviously I'm sure is breaking a lot of people's hearts to see the beating he took against Justin Gaethje and then to just get dominated the way he did tonight. I mean, who controls Tony like that on the ground? I mean, understand the levels to jiu-jitsu, right? As a very basic way of explaining jiu-jitsu. And this is super basic, but it's generally true. Three levels. Survival, defend, attack. There were some defending in there. A lot of it was survival, especially from Mount, right? Where you're in such a bad position, all you can do is just hang on for dear life, okay? I've just never seen anyone do that to Tony. So Tony is, I think, 36. Uh, when, when does he turn 37? He turns 37 in February, so not far. He'll be 37 very soon in about less than two months. Um, what does that mean? Well, we should be very careful about what we want to say. Does it mean he won't have another win again? Absolutely not. Does it mean that he won't have another win against a very good fighter, maybe even an elite one again? No, it does not. But it also means to me, when you look around, Habib is now gone. We'll see what happens between Poirier and McGregor. You have what's happened to Ferguson, happened to him. To me, there is some decline that I think you have to account for. Whenever you have a win like this, people don't want to... In MMA, it's especially true. In boxing, they'll call it out right away. 
MMA fans get treated to a steady diet of commentary and events that always acknowledges how happy everything is and how good everything is and how much everyone has fixed all their problems and how everyone has ironed out all their issues and that's the end of it. But the reality is that's just not how the fight game works. You don't want to bury somebody uh, ahead of time. And I've made that mistake before and really had to pay for it. And I've talked about it a million times. If there's one error I have made, it was deciding that I thought Arlovsky was done long before that was actually true. And I regret it. And it's one of my, my things I'm most embarrassed about. And, and just that was so wrong. you know. And I don't want to make that mistake twice. So I'm not telling you that Ferguson is done or can't get some really good, interesting, clever wins. What I am telling you is you still cannot... A, disregard that the beating he took against Gaethje, you can't declare that it had carryover to this fight, but I really do wonder, and it's certainly something you cannot dismiss. I didn't see Eddie Bravo. I didn't see Rashad Holloway in his corner. Maybe they were there and I just mis- I misinterpreted it, so I want to be clear. But I didn't look like he had the same coaches. And yes, on the ground, that Oliveira is going to beat just about anyone in that way on the ground at 155. But even on the feet, he just... He wasn't pulling the trigger quite the same way. He just didn't have the same zip and pop and command. Um, you know, he was taken down three times against uh, Kevin Lee, but he also had really good takedown defense against RDA. And RDA, granted, is not Charles Oliveira. I'm just pointing out, it just seemed like sometimes fighters get to a certain level and then they decline from that. Um, I, I don't know if that's the, the case. But the evidence is pretty clear that sometimes fighters can get to a good place and then the game just catches up. I mean, do I think John Jones is a better version of a fighter than he was five, six, seven years ago? Yeah, of course I do. But the game is caught up. That's how you have a guy like Dominic Reyes who can start pro MMA in 2014 and then, in my mind, take three rounds from him. It's because the game just catches up at times. The game is catching up. You know, and, and at 36, 37 years old at heavyweight, that's not that big a deal. Heavyweight fighters are kind of old. Um, in fact, 37 is not necessarily age prohibitive whatsoever at welterweight, which you have Tyron Woodley, 38 years old, or at lightweight, he'll soon be 37. He's 36 now, you know, again, not, not in any way, some kind of like, Oh, the end is here. And then, you know, cash in your chips. And that's the end of it. It's not what I'm saying, but time is not on his side. And for him to get beaten up the way he did against Gaethje and then to just not only lose three rounds, but like lose him kind of badly, um, I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's not a great sign. It's not a great sign. Folks, sometimes in MMA, just want to say, oh, well, one guy was just better than the other, and uh, the other one's just the same as they've always been. But if you're just the same as they've always been, and there was a guy you would have beaten eight out of the last ten years, maybe even nine out of the last ten years, and not this year, means the game is catching up to the level of stasis that you are providing. Uh, or at least that's one, it seems, I wanted, I wanted to be careful about this. Even if you can't declare that outright, that is a fair... Um, that's a reasonable conclusion to draw. Uh, if you don't want to draw it right yet, because you want to see sort of like more like a Tyron Woodley situation, where let's see if, like one more time, two more times, and let's see where we get from there. Fair, you know. Again, I, I don't want folks to give up hope and say the end is nigh, but you can't take beatings in this game and just decide they don't have a role, 
or repeated injuries and say that they don't play a role. Or the case of his arm in this fight. I mean, I'll say this about Tony Ferguson. Uh, 99% of black belts would have tapped. Forget humans. 99% of black belts would have tapped. And he didn't because he is just in his mind. It's so strong. But sometimes your mind can be strong and your body won't catch up. I'm just saying, however you want to frame it, losing, you know, beating Mike Rio, Katsunori Kakuno, Danny Castillo, Abel Trujillo, Gleason Tebow, Josh Thompson, Edson Barboza, Lando Venata, Rafael Dos Anjos, Kevin Lee, Anthony Pettis, and Donald Cerrone as late as June 2019. You can't get all those wins, all those rounds, all those times, and then you drop eight and A, just decide the person's not good anymore, which is not what I'm suggesting. But B, say that that's, they're as good as they've ever been. Maybe there's a decline from their own level of ability and or the rest of the game has leveled up itself, even if he stayed the same. It is worth acknowledging that um, you know this is a part of the game that sucks. As a media member, when you say these kinds of things, you don't do it to be mean or rude or awful or to be hurtful. Tony Ferguson has been a source of joy um, for you know thousands, millions of fight fans. He has done something. One of, I mean, that win streak from the Rio fight to the Cerrone fight, truly one of the most incredible things you'll ever see, not only in that division and all of MMA, and that he never really got the title shot when he probably should have, and then he got the belt, but he tripped over his, a cable on a fucking you know, wire in a studio. Like, you know, the fortunes didn't smile upon him the way that he was owed, man. He was owed those things. And he didn't get him. I don't want to lose sight of that, and I don't want folks to ever think anything less of him. I just also cannot get on here and say, yeah, same old Tony. Same, same old thing. It's just that Oliveira's a lot better. Okay, there is no denying Oliveira is a lot better. And maybe Oliveira would have beaten 2017 uh, Tony Ferguson. I don't know. But you can't lose the way he's losing and and sometimes in the fight game, you just get old overnight. Look at Tyron Woodley, right? I mean, he was just on top of the game until he wasn't. And now you're like, well, I don't know where he goes from here. That's not necessarily the place that Tony finds himself in. But tonight when you saw Jacare losing, I don't know how many in a row, uh, JDS losing four in a row, Woodley three in a row, it is hard to be an elite fighter as the sport gets younger, which I think that it is as fighters get into the sport earlier. They're making their debuts a little bit earlier. And it's hard to maintain that dominance. You know, maybe, maybe Nurmagomedov's getting out at the right time. And, and maybe the bout all along was never going to be Tony versus Habib. It should have been Habib versus, I don't know, Oliveira maybe. It looks to me like if Habib had fought this version of Ferguson, whether in May or any other time, uh, April in Brooklyn or whatever, I, you know, it looks to me like Habib probably would have won and not without, or I should say without much issue. You know, that's speculative. Nobody knows. So... It's a big reset moment for Tony. Tony has a lot of resetting to do to get back to a point where he can um, showcase what made him good, which was predictability mixed with a ton of unpredictability, which was uh, iron jaw, uh, big punching power, well-roundedness, ability to scramble, offense from everywhere, and credit to Oliveira for taking a lot of that away with the game plan that he had. It was really, really smart, and it was dominant, and... You know, that's, if not the best jiu-jitsu in the UFC in terms of MMA, like how it applies in MMA, it's, it's you know, top three, top two. Charles Oliveira is the man. So, you know, a, a painful loss, I think, for Tony Ferguson and his army of fans, and I understand that. Um, let's be careful about this. Let's see what he can cook up in his next fight. Um, but I don't know how you can look at those eight rounds and you could say, oh, he looked, he won the second. I mean, sort of. 
He dropped Justin at the end of the second round, but in general, that was a fight that was headed one way for the majority of the time. And he survived this one, but his arm is a disaster, I'm sure, today. Uh, and eight rounds, all of a sudden, where you're getting crushed, the game, the rest of the game, people are leveling up around you, which means your place in the division is not as ironclad as it once is. And quite literally, it is. he's going to suffer a stock drop on this one. So we'll have to see what he can do from here. It's, uh, it's going to be a big test to regroup from this one. But, you know, if anyone is mentally tough enough to regroup from that task, it is probably, if not certainly him. All right, well, there is so much more that happened. We will get to all of it on Monday's Morning Combat, 11 a.m. live. Brian will be with me. You guys will be with me. Instagram tomorrow, Morning Combat. We'll put up a post where you can leave all your questions for us. We could talk Mackenzie Dern. We can talk more about the flyweight fight. We can talk about everything from the main and prelim card and blah, blah, blah. Everything up and down. Whatever is on your mind, we will get to it, okay? So thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. And uh, what a night of fights. Thank you guys so much for joining me. And until next time, uh, I'll see you all later.